Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, I thank you tonight that you want to have your word brought to every person. And that's not going to happen unless we all take our responsibility to reach as many people as possible. Help us tonight as we consider your word to let it do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42. (coughs) Uh, Could somebody get me a glass of water? For some reason, my throat feels sort of dry. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, you had the Methodist circuit-riding preachers. And one of those was a man by the name of Jesse Lee. And I'm going to tell you a story that was told many years later to his nephew. His nephew uh, had the name Lee, and he was in a store. And there was an old man in the store who told this story. He asked, do you know Jesse Lee? And he said, yes, he's my uncle. He said, well, I want to tell you a story about Jesse Lee. He said, as a youth, I went to one of Jesse Lee's uh, meetings to hear him preach, and the place was packed, and I and a few of my friends were outside the back door. And uh, we got a little bit bored, and so we started to create a little bit of a disturbance. And he said, Jesse Lee very kindly uh, rebuked us uh, for, for the disturbance we were causing. And he said, it made me very angry because I thought it disgraced me and my family. And I determined that I was going to whip that man before he left the property. But somehow he said he left without that happening. He said, a number of years later, after I had grown up and had matured and had forgotten about the incident, was no longer angry, uh, I was in town and um, a two-wheeled carriage left. And uh, I was behind, and he said, I thought, that looks like Jesse Lee. So he said, I pulled up beside his carriage, and I looked over and said, are you Jesse Lee? He said, yes. He said, do you remember the incident? And he described the incident that happened. And Jesse Lee said, yes, yes, I remember that. Uh, He said, well, he said, I determined to whip you that night. And he said, "I, I, I intend to do that now. And Jesse Lee said, well, he said, I'm an old man. If you did that, if I decided to fight with you, you would win. And he said, besides, uh, the Bible says the servant of God may not strive. So if you'll just give me time to get down off this carriage in the middle of the road, you can whip me as long as you want to. And he said, something of terror came over me. He said, I got on my, or spurred my horse, and he said, I could not get away fast enough. He said, there was something about that that just absolutely uh, terrified me. This can hardly be called (laughs) non-resistance. I think it's resistance of the highest order. Jesse Lee won a real battle in that man's heart and turned it completely away from what he had intended, the violence he had intended to commit. So the title of this message is The Ideal Resistance. I never liked the term non-resistance because it sounds passive, and Christians are anything but passive. They are very aggressive in the way they relate to the kind of situations I just described. Now, we all know that something needs to be done about evil. People that talk to me on the phone line when this subject comes up, uh, the whole issue is how do we deal with the issue of evil? Everybody agrees evil has to be dealt with. Thank you very much. And so I want to talk first about, in fact, I have three points tonight, the ideal anticipated, the ideal asserted, and then the ideal applied. 
how does it actually work? Well, we all know that evil cannot be allowed to reign unchecked. We all know that. And after the flood, God said, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Okay? But what we read in the first part of the Bible is what I would call unlimited revenge. Lamech said, I have killed a youth who attacked and wounded me. If someone killing Cain was to be punished seven times, then anyone taking revenge against me shall be punished 77 times. That's unlimited revenge. Simeon and Levi, when their sister was violated, went and destroyed a whole village of people, just completely wiped them off because of this uh, wrong that was done. This is the law of the jungle. Might makes right. Inflict more injury than you have received. Now, if that were to continue, the result would be mutual self-destruction. In fact, our world is sort of getting to that place if we're not careful. I read a bumper sticker not too long ago that says, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So, a better way was revealed by God. Instead of unlimited revenge, we have limited revenge. This is the Old Testament. Two principles of limited revenge were the revenge should be limited to the exact amount that was of the wrong that was inflicted. And even more important, it won't be the result, it won't be the action of the person who was injured. It'll be put before judges, impartial judges, rather than someone who's just really angry, just doing what he thinks needs to be done. So there were two principles in that limited revenge. Number one, you exact exactly the same amount of damage that was done, the same amount of hurt, and it's taken out of your hands personally and put into the hands of impartial judges to decide how that should be administered. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, Exodus 21, 24, and 25. Now, this was the first step toward a new society, okay? Okay. I tell people who ask about the Old Testament, I say, you have to understand the Old Testament was God moving a group of people from what I just described to the ideal of Christ. And in between, a lot of it was messy because God was working with people who had, he had given uh, free will and uh, there were certain parameters. He couldn't violate his, uh, he couldn't lie. He couldn't violate his character. God was working within certain parameters and so he had to work people within those parameters. And here we have it. So we had unlimited revenge Now we have limited revenge, and the next step was limited love. And I want you to turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. This is a very famous passage where people know that the idea of love thy neighbor as thyself is found. But I want you to, I'm having you turn here because I want you to see carefully what it actually says. Starting with verse 17, it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not revenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Did you notice that this command is only in relation to the children of thy people. You see that? That's why 
when Jesus said, uh, love, when, when Jesus was commenting on love thy neighbor as thyself, that's why the man said, and who is my neighbor? He knew this Old Testament command to love your neighbors yourself applied only to your fellow Israelite neighbor. It did not apply to the nations around, and I want to show you that. So would you turn to De Deuteronomy chapter 23? Uh, and we're looking at verse 3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, a Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. So they were not supposed to be treated as, as neighbors, okay? And even, even more so... If you just turn over two chapters to chapter 25, uh, and we're looking at verse 17 of chapter 25, it says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. So when you hear that that statement, love thy neighbors thyself, is from Leviticus 19, always remember that that was the next step, limited love. Don't, don't uh, have any revenge among your own people, love them as yourself. But these other people, uh, they, they were not included, okay? So we have unlimited revenge, we have limited revenge, and we have limited love in the Old Testament. And that brings us to the final step that God brought into his law, which was unlimited love, all right? And it's interesting that that's anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, even though it was limited love in the Old Testament, unlimited love was anticipated. Remember Elisha and the Syrian army. When the Syrian army came to get Elisha because they said, he, uh, he's telling all your secrets, king. That's why we can never get advantage of the Israelite army because they always know ahead of time what's going to happen. The king, first of all, thought one of his own people was uh, uh, betraying them. And they said, no, 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 it's Elisha, the prophet. He tells, he tells the Lord what you say in your bedchamber. And uh, the king said, go get him. So they went to get him. The whole Syrian army went to get this one man. I told you the other night that he was their one-man army, <laughs> Elisha. They, the whole Syrian army get to, went to get Israel. Well, I'm sorry, Elijah was. But here's Elisha, their one-man army. And uh, he asked the Lord to strike them blind. And then he leads them into the city of Samaria. And then they close the gates. Well, here's the chance. I mean, Syria had been a pain in the neck. If you read, their army had caused them no end of trouble. And here was the chance to get rid of the whole army. And that's what the king said. My father, shall I smite them? And Elisha said, no. Set bread and water before them. And the Bible says, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their own master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Beautiful example of uh, unlimited love. 
And we also have verses in the Old Testament, in Proverbs. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord and he will save thee. That's Proverbs 20, 22. Here's Proverbs 24, 29. This might surprise you that this is in the Old Testament. Say not that I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to every man according to his work. And even more surprising is this one in Proverbs 25, 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Romans chapter 12. That's quoted from the Old Testament. So this unlimited love was, pre was, was, was shattered, foreshadowed here in the Old Testament. Okay? So... <clears throat> Let's talk about it. That's the ideal anticipated. Here's the ideal asserted. Resist not evil, the, our text says, but if you read all the newer translations, they give it the way I think it should have been rendered. Resist not an evil person. Because I think we are to resist evil, but we're not to resist evil people. We're to resist the evil that's in them, and we'll be talking about that. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 and talk about this. There was a definite uh, move beyond the Old Testament because uh, <clears throat> the disciples remembered that Elisha one time called down fire upon heaven to destroy a, a contingent of people who came to arrest him. And the disciples said to Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven for these Samaritans who've rejected you? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So here's a clear shift from the Old Testament to the New, uh, Jesus made it very clear that uh, what Elisha did, uh, we, they, that was not going to be done anymore, okay? Well, <clears throat> here's where, <laughs> when we get to this unlimited love standard that Jesus gave, here's where many Christians want to take the exit ramp. And so they, they point to the two swords in Luke 22, okay? The two swords, well, what, what about these two swords in Luke 22, well, let's stop to think about it. Jesus obviously was not planning for anybody to defend him with those swords. We know what was done with one of them later, and Jesus rebuked the man who used it. And you certainly could not have conquered a Roman legion with two swords. We do know what one of them was used for, and we know what Jesus said when it was used. He said, put your sword in its sheath, Peter, one of those two swords. All they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. So it's pretty obvious to me that Jesus had those swords taken, or at least it's, I shouldn't say it's obvious, but I think he had those two swords taken along as an object lesson. He, 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 he knew they probably were going to try to use it, and he could, he could use that for an object lesson. Peter put your sword in its sheath. Well, then they have the, you have those people that say, well, what about Cornelius? He was a, uh, a centurion, and he got converted, and there was nothing said about him leaving his occupation. Well, that's an argument from silence. And you can prove almost anything is an, uh, an argument from silence. What about that man, that, uh, the centurion that came to Jesus to have his servant healed, his slave? Jesus didn't tell him to get rid of his slave either. That's an that would be an argument from silence. And believe you me, during the era of slavery, that was used. That was used. An argument from, well, see, Jesus didn't tell him to get rid of his slave. So we can't go down that road uh, because you can read into these uh, stories, almost anything you want to read. We don't know what Cornelius was told when it was all said and done. We don't know that. Okay. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. That's one that we have to look at a little bit. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13. 
<clears throat> which is often used. They say, see, uh, these men uh, in, uh, uh, that are using uh, lethal force, uh, they're God's servants. Because <clears throat> it says so in Romans 13. Well, I think Romans 13 pictures the kingdom of heaven, people in a real world, okay? I want you to notice uh, that there is a pronoun shift in this chapter. Let's just read a few of the verses. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, but the powers that be ordained of God, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Well, thou then, now notice the word is thou, then not be afraid of the power. Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, oh, we were talking about thou, and now we're talking about he. And if you go down through this passage, it's thou and he, and thou and he, and thou and he. It's talking about two different groups of people. It's talking about God's people. One is talking about the ruler. It's not putting him in the same category. Okay. And by the way, who was this minister that Paul was talking about? It was Nero. I don't think anybody claims that Nero was a Christian or was part of the church. Well, what about this word, these people are ministers? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, God calls him my servant in Jeremiah 25, 9. Cyrus in Isaiah 44, 28 is called my shepherd. These people were servants, but they weren't which simply means they were people that God used to carry out his plans. It doesn't mean they were one of his favorite people or, or one of uh, uh, Israel. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that, uh, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean they were Christians. Uh, and then it says, obedience is based on conscience. If you go down to Romans 13, verse 5, look at this. Uh, Wherefore ye must needs, ye, see it's ye, must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Well, the only way that you could uh, respond for conscience sake is if you kept your conscience sensitive and clear. But war does not do that. Fighting does not do that. I live near Gettysburg, and if you visit that battlefield and you get a tour, they'll tell you something like this, that the potential killing rate, the potential killing rate from the people who were there would have been 500 to 1,000 per minute. The actual killing rate in the Battle of Gettysburg was one or two per minute. And then they found something very interesting. There were 27,000 muskets retrieved after the battle. 90% of them were still loaded. More than half of them had multiple loads. It means people stood there and loaded their guns and didn't shoot them. One musket had 23 charges loaded into it. Some guy just kept loading his musket and never picked it up and shot it. Witnesses in the battle claimed that some of the men loaded guns and handed them to other people to shoot. They could not bring themselves to aim at a human being and kill. There's something in us that just cannot kill a human being. I mean, normal people. I mean, they're, path they're pathological people. But I'm talking about ordinary people that would have gone to the battlefield to pick up a gun and actually shoot at a fellow human being was something their conscience would not let them do. And this was always a problem in battle. Uh, in all wars, they've had this problem, to get people in a frame of mind that they would do this awful stuff. So in World War II, 
they got that percentage up to 15 to 20% of the people who would actually, this is surprising, that only a minority of people, even in World War II, actually would shoot to kill. In the Korean War, they had it up to 55%. In the Vietnam War, they got it up to 90%. But how did they do it? They did it by brutalizing, by classical conditioning, by role modeling. Dean Taylor said they would stand for long periods of time saying, kill, kill with cold blue steel, kill the whole group, kill, kill with cold blue steel. What makes the grass green? Blood. What makes the grass green? Blood. That's the kind of stuff they used to get people to kill people. And then we're supposed to respond for conscience sake? Well, by the time you're through all of that, what conscience do you have left? Boot camp uses physical and emotional abuse, desensitization, and depersonalization to get people to do these awful things. Talk to anybody that's been through it, and they'll tell you that's, that's the case, okay? Killing defiles and perverts the conscience. In fact, violence corrupts. Another fact about war, at the outset of World War II, both the United States and the United Kingdom condemned German bombing of civilians. Bombing was only supposed to be military installations and military personnel. You did not bomb hospitals and, and civilian people. And uh, both Roosevelt and Churchill roundly condemned the Germans because that's what they were doing. But later, in 1940, when the Allies got desperate enough, they began to bomb German cities. In 1942, just... Uh, Near the end of the war, actually, uh, the UK began obliteration bombing of cities. In 1943, the US joined them. And finally, when they bombed Dresden, they created a firestorm. How many of you know what a firestorm is? A firestorm is when they bomb a city so often and create a fire that is so hot that it uh, creates hurricane winds that sweep in and sweep everything into the middle of that fire. Now, when they bombed Dresden, they did it by accident. They didn't know how to create a firestorm. But once they discovered how to create a firestorm, they then started doing it on purpose to other cities. And so what you do is you go in there and you bomb a certain part of the city till you have such a hot fire created that there's hurricane winds that sweeps everything in the city into the middle of the fire. And I visited Dresden. There was only one building left in that city. And you can imagine what happened to all the civilians. So what happened? The people who were fighting for justice ended up having about the same mentality as the people who were fighting on the other side as far as their sense of humanity was concerned. It utterly corrupted their sense of reality. Jesus demonstrated a better way. Let's turn to Isaiah 53, verse 12. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, verse 12. This is the end of a very familiar chapter, and it says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he should divide the spoil with the strong. Well, when you're dividing spoil, it means you want a battle. This is an interesting battle. This battle was won not by killing people. It was won by dying. Jesus' death 
one spoil to be distributed. Somebody has called this reverse fighting, where instead of killing to win, you die to win. And the success of this, of course, is based on the power of the resurrection. But let's not call this non-resistance. We are called to a battlefield. For though we walk after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We are fighting a real battle, but we're serving a different commander. We're using different rules of engagement. We have different goals for our conflict, and we accomplish our goals in an altogether different way. And that's why I wanted to talk about the next section, the ideal applied. What are we talking about? We had the ideal anticipated. Uh, we had the ideal asserted, and now we have the ideal applied. We'll turn back to Matthew, and we'll look at the rest of this passage, Matthew chapter 5. We have this, this uh, <clears throat> ideal resistance applied in four areas. The first one is in 39b. Let's read it. But I say unto you that re ye resist not evil men. I think that's how that should read. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay. In interpersonal relationships, that's the first area we want to talk about. Now it says if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, now, if I walked up to you, and we're just assuming this is talking about right-handed people, and I hit you on the right cheek, I'm not going to go like this. I'm probably going to go like this. It's a backslap. It's an insult. Not necessarily meant to hurt, but just meant to, to insult. Okay? Now, it doesn't say you're supposed to say, hit me on the other cheek. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. And he has a decision to make. Is he going to be cowardly enough to hit you twice when you have not made any effort to retaliate? You've taken the offensive. You're forcing him to go further. You're forcing him to, to, to pursue his own ill will further. You're forcing him onto your own battlefield with rules of engagement he doesn't understand, with methods he doesn't understand, with goals he doesn't understand, and with a dynamic he doesn't understand. You've completely caught him off guard. He's trying to break your head. <laughs> You're using a method to break his heart. All right? <clears throat> You're choosing the battlefield and you're choosing the weapons and you're compelling him to stand on unfamiliar ground and face weapons he has no idea how to fight. Did you hear the story of Pastor Peter in the Emmental? How many of you read, um, what's the Coals of Fire? How many read the little book, Coals of Fire? Okay, the first story in there, all right. Tells about this old bishop. It's a true story. They came to take the thatch off of his house. He gets awake in the middle of the night and hears them up there and he says, Mom, you need to get awake. There are people outside here working and they're going to be hungry for breakfast. Get up and uh, make breakfast for them. So she gets up and makes breakfast. And then he goes out and he says to him, Look, you men, you're hardworking men. I, I want to compliment you on your uh, night's worth of hard work. Uh, we have breakfast for you. 
well, of course, they don't want to come in and eat the breakfast. But they finally come in sheepishly. They sit down and they eat. Nothing much is said. They quietly get up. They walk out. They go back up and put the thatch on the roof. Now, it won't always work that way. But let me say this. If love doesn't conquer, nothing else will. You can fight them, but you only create more fight. Okay? You might be able to fight them so badly they can't move and you think you won. But this is the, this is the most powerful thing that anybody can use to actually win the battle that's going on in the heart. Well, let's talk about jurisprudence. Verse 40. And if any man will sue thee, now we're in the courtroom, at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Well, now, if you remember in the Old Testament, you could take a cloak for a pledge, but the, God says that cloak, the poor man needs that to cover up at night. You've got to give that back before he goes to bed. You can take it only as a pledge during the daytime hours. He's got to have that coat every night. Cloak. Well, here you're giving up your rights. I, you know, giving you the cloak. Not as a pledge. Take it. Okay? The Christian has no rights. The Christian just has responsibilities. And again, you're taking the offensive. You're taking charge. This is the moral equivalent of war against evil. Let's go to politics. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. That's the Roman government. That's politics. If, if somebody, if a Roman soldier told you to go a mile, you had to go the mile, but then you didn't have to go any further. Well, the first mile, <laughs> you're a slave. The second mile, you're in charge. Okay? This is active, ideal resistance, and it's a powerful way to handle evil, even if, even if uh, you die. And you say, well, some people are going to die. Well, we're in a conflict. There are casualties in a conflict. Of course, some people die. But the cause will succeed, okay? Business, give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. Again, it's the plus that tips the scale. It doesn't say give what he asked. Peter said, I don't have the money, but I'll give you something. And I really think we should do that. Uh, well, what do you do? You get all these requests. Well, it doesn't say you have to give them what they ask, but give them something. Give them what they need. Probably not what they ask, but what they need, Okay. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 36. Let's take a look at that. One of my favorite passages. <clears throat> For if you love them which love you, what thank have you? That word thank, by the way, is the word charis. What Christianity do you have? What grace do you have? Sinners love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what Christianity do you have? Sinners can do that. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what Christianity do you have? Sinners can do that to receive as much again. Sinners don't even require interest sometimes. They'll pay back the principal without interest. And then we argue, should you charge interest? Anyway, be that as it may. But love you, your enemies, and do good and lend... hoping for nothing again. And I was teaching an adult Sunday school class one time and one of the old men just blurted out and he said, well, that's not lending, that's giving. (laughs) Lend hoping for nothing again. And that's the point. Do Christians lend money? 
Well, maybe if somebody's starting a business and, and you know, they're going to profit and that you can help them start their business, perhaps you can see that as different. But if somebody's actually poor, why would you charge interest? Just give it to them, okay? And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he's kind unto the unthankful, to the evil be. Therefore, merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. So, this is the righteousness that exceeds that Jesus talked about. This is the joy that exceeds. This is the love that exceeds. This is the ideal resistance. Is it practical? Well, for 200 years, the church practiced this. I mean, that's just a matter of history. And it's, it's known that for 200 years, the church did not permit a fighting soldier to be part of the church. Now, they'll tell you it's because in the army, they had to constantly give their little pinch of incense to Caesar, and the Christians didn't want to do that. And so... I don't know what they did, but that's not what the Christians said. The Christians did not say that, all right? In fact, the interesting thing about it is that 200 years is the time of the Pax Romana. Does anybody know what the Pax Romana was? That was the 200 years of Roman peace when there was no major conflict in the world anywhere. And the Christians took credit for it. The history books that I studied in high school didn't, they said, well, the reason for the Pax Romana is because the Roman army was so strong and so terrible that nobody dared to defy them. But the Christians said, the reason for this Pax Romana is because the Prince of Peace has come and he has set up a kingdom of peace and the prayers of that kingdom and the activities of that kingdom are keeping the devil from causing problems in the world. That's what the Christians said, okay? And it's interesting that that Roman peace ended about the time when the church began to compromise on the whole issue of non-resistance. I think it's very interesting that that 200 years was coterminous with the church's universal practice of peace. Let me read you what Origen said about it. Uh, he was defending the Christians' uh, non-involvement in government to the emperor. Our prayers defeat all demons who stir up war. Those demons also lead persons to violate their oaths and disturb the peace. Accordingly, in this way, we are much more helpful to the kings than those who go to the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when we join self-denying exercises to our righteous prayers and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led away by them. What he's saying is, to our prayers, we, eat, we, we add deeds of mercy. We go into a city where a plague is killing everybody and everybody runs away and we go in and risk our lives to take care of people. That's what Christians did. He says, we, we add that to our prayers too. So none fight better for the king than we do. Indeed, we do not fight under him, even if he demands it, yet we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of godliness by offering our prayers to God. And if he would have us lead armies in defense of our country, let him know that we do this too. And we do not do it for the purpose of being seen by men or for vain glory, for in secret and in our own hearts, our prayers ascend on behalf of our fellow citizens as from priests, so Christians are benefactors of their country more than others. That was the Christian answer to the Roman government, okay? The nuclear weapon of the Christian faith, it's his willingness to face any issue without any fear of death. Read Romans 8, 35, 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the nuclear weapon of the Christians. The blood of the martyrs, we all know, was the seed of the church. They were not terrorized by death. Well, 
I want to conclude with a story that was found in the Pathway Reader, and it also was quoted by Clarence Gordon, and I'll do this in closing. A story was related by an old colonel in the Austrian army. I was commanded, the old colonel began, to march against a little town in the Tyrol and to lay siege to it. We had been meeting stubborn resistance in that part of the country, but we felt sure that we should win because all the advantages were on our side. My confidence, however, was arrested by a remark from a prisoner we had taken. You will never take that town, he said, for they have an invincible leader. What does the fellow mean? I inquired of one of my staff, and who is the leader of whom he spoke? Nobody seemed able to answer my question, and so in case there should be some truth in the report, I doubled my preparations. As we descended through the pass in the Alps, I saw with surprise that the cattle were still grazing in the valley and that women and children, yes, and even men, were working in the fields. Either they're not expecting us or this is a trap to catch us, I thought to myself. As we drew nearer the town, we passed people on the road. They smiled and greeted us with a friendly word and then went on their way. Finally, we reached the town and clattered up the cobbled paved streets, colors flying, uh, horn-sounding horn challenge and arms in readiness. Women came to the windows or doorways with little babies in their arms. Some of them looked startled, then held their babies closer, then went quietly on with their household tasks without panic or confusion. It was impossible to keep discipline, and I began to feel rather foolish. My soldiers answered the questions of the children, and I saw one old warrior throw a kiss to a little golden-haired tot on a doorstep. Just the size of my Lisa, he muttered. Still no sign of an ambush. We rode straight to the open square which faced the town hall. Here, if anywhere, resistance surely was to be expected. Just as I had reached the hall and my guard was drawn up to attention, an old white-haired man, who by his insignia I surmised to be the mayor, stepped forth, followed by 10 men in simple peasant costume. They were all dignified and unabashed by the armed force before them the most terrible soldiers of the great and mighty army of Austria. The mayor walked down the steps straight to my horse's side and with a hand extended cried, welcome brother. <laughs> One of my aides made a gesture to, as if to strike him down with his sword, but I saw by the face of the man that this was not a trick. Where are your soldiers, I demanded. Soldiers? Why don't you know we don't have any? He replied in wonderment as if I had asked, where are your giants or where are your dwarfs? Well, we have come to take this town. Well, no one will stop you. Are there none here to fight? At this question, the old man's face lit up with a rare smile that I will always remember. Often afterward, when engaged in bloody warfare, I would suddenly see that man smile and somehow I came to hate my business. His words were simply this. No, there is no one here to fight. We have chosen Christ for our leader, and he taught men a different way. There seemed nothing left to do but to ride away, leaving the town unmolested. It was impossible to take it. If I had ordered my soldiers to fire on these smiling men and women, they would not have obeyed me. Even military discipline has its limits. Could I command the grisly soldier to shoot down the child who reminded him of his Lisa. I reported to headquarters that the town had offered unassailable resistance. See, it's the ideal resistance. Although this admission injured my military reputation, I was right. 
we had literally been conquered by these simple folk who followed implicitly the leadership of Jesus. Now, like I said, it won't always end that way. But if you don't win them that way, you won't win them any other way. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, we thank you tonight that you have shown us a better way. And even though it may bring us into terrible circumstances, we will always know that we are at peace with you and in harmony with the universe and with the cause that we'll eventually win. And I pray, Lord, help us to love people. Help us to forgive. Help us to deal with anger as we discussed last night. Help us truly to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And may we use this ideal resistance in effective ways to break down the evil that's in the hearts of people and bring them to the same peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I would like to sing 778 in the hymnal. Seven hundred seventy eight. This is a very interesting song. Notice it was written, the text was written by William Boris. William Boris was not an Anabaptist, but he was non resistant. I don't know where he got that teaching but he decided to go to Japan as a teacher. And uh, he was an architect actually, but he had classes, uh, Bible classes, and he loved to teach the Sermon on the Mount and especially loved to teach the part that we talked about tonight. Well, the time came when Japan attacked our country. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. He became a Japanese citizen. He married a Japanese woman, and there he was in Japan as a Japanese citizen. And then World War II broke out, and now his native country and his adopted country are fighting each other. And it gave him a tremendous amount of sorrow. But he decided that he would stay and not get involved in the hostilities, hoping that at the end of the war he could do something to reconcile these two countries. And he actually did participate in the peace that was finally drawn up between his native country and his adopted country. These words were written long before World War II, they were written in 1908, but they give his testimony of what he would like to see in our world and in our hearts. So let's sing this. To me, let there be light, Lord God of hosts. Let there be wisdom on the earth. Let brought humanity have birth, let there be deeds instead of boast. Within our passion, hearts instill the calm that endeth strain and strife. Make us thy of life, purge us from lust that curse and kill. Give us the peace of vision clear to see our brothers go 
suffer not alone the love that casteth out all fear. Let woe and waste of warfare cease that useful labor yet may build its homes with love and virtue filled. God give thy wayward children peace. One more song, 159, this is another prayer. <clears throat> It's a prayer for our nation. O day of God, draw nigh. Come with timeless judgment to match our present hour. This might not be familiar. Let's sing the first verse in unison. Do, O day of God, draw nigh. In beauty and in power. Come with thy timeless judgment now to match the present hour. Now the parts bring to our troubled minds uncertain and The quiet of a steadfast faith come up, call obeyed. Bring justice to our land that all And finally he built four days to come foundation that endure. Bring to our world of strife thy sovereign. That war may haunt the earth no more, and as shall cease. O day of God, draw nigh as at this community. Uh, I have really enjoyed learning to know you. You've been a good audience.
Tomorrow morning, we'll have a message on kingdom economics, and the final message will be on the kingdom prayer, which will be the Lord's Prayer. You are dismissed. <laughs>